A new United Nations report warns the impacts of climate change are increasing and inevitable. Experts say that we have until 2030 to avoid catastrophe. Temperatures in the Arctic have warmed about two to three times the global average. It will be very difficult and impossible for our children to control climate change. This is South of Two Degrees, and I am your host, Brian Barnes. It is so good to have you with us today on the only podcast dedicated to bringing unfiltered scientific research to the forefront of the climate conversation. We've got a great show today as we look into the recent past and how some things we thought we had managed might not be so under control. So my friends, once more, into the fray. Welcome back, and while I know the plan was to only be out for a week, we ended up opting for two, such that I could spend a little more time with my new daughter. And for those that are curious, mom and baby are both happy and healthy. Now, Cecilia's birth and a few long nights rocking her got me thinking a little about what her world would look like. No, I'm not going to read the letter I wrote her, but as we started digging through research papers to put together today's show, I was captivated by the thought not just of changes she'll see in her life, but on a generational scale, what will the world look like for her grandkids or great-grandkids? While we are slowly, yes, very slowly, coming around to fight anthropogenic climate change with the brute force and ingenuity that is unique to the human race, the thought kept hitting me. What if we're missing something today that's going to impact our descendants three, four, five generations from now? That's why I was so excited when the team came across today's paper as it discusses something similar. No, it doesn't address the thought in my head exactly, but it should make us stop and think as it appears something we thought we had addressed and put to bed might actually rear its head for those future generations to address. Plus, mystery podcasts seem to be all the rage right now, so we thought we'd take a stab, get it, eh, at pulling off a scientific version. So with that ominous lead-in, Let's get after it. Those that have been with us for a while will remember the fifth episode of our first season where we discussed the Montreal Protocol. While I won't dive into those details today, it's worth a quick recap. Of course, if you want more detail or need a definition or two of the terms I use, feel free to look up that episode. It came out May 27th, I believe, of last year and is worth a listen. For today, we'll just hit the highlights. On September 16, 1987, in Montreal, Canada, 27 nations came together and agreed upon corrective actions addressing the use of halogenated hydrocarbons or ozone-depleting substances. CFCs chief amongst them and their damaging effects on the Earth's ozone layer, most notably over Antarctica. It entered into force January 1, 1989, and the two treaties contained within the Montreal Protocol have undergone nine positive revisions and have been ratified by 196 nations and the European Union. Now, as we learned in Episode 5, current scientific research has shown that the work the nations of the world put into the Montreal Protocol had positive impacts across multiple systems. Not only did the hole in the ozone start to heal, but also the poleward shift trend of both the Hadley cell and eddy-driven jet during the Antarctic summer, as well as a general strengthening of the southern annular mode during those same months, all flattened. This is all a direct result of what many herald is one of the most effective international agreements ever. Great, Brian. We solved it, you say. So why all the doomism at the front of the show? Well, 
you see, as we celebrate the changes with Hadley, Eddie, and Sam, sounds like a bad band, I know, in the healing of the Yozone, it seems like we missed something. Before we look at what, let's get to know one of those halogenated hydrocarbons. It all starts today with CFC 11. So let's make sure that we have a firm grasp on what exactly it is before we go deeper. CFC-11, more accurately called trichlorofluoromethane, has an ozone-depleting potential of 1, making it second only to halon-1211 and tied with CFC-13 in its destructive capabilities. It was one of the original substances banned under the Montreal Protocol, and it has a rather long lifetime at approximately 55 years in the atmosphere. Now, since the Montreal Protocol, there has, as expected, been a steady decline in atmospheric CFC-11. That is, until recently. Hold up, Ryan. We stopped producing, and while sure there's some stores that might be leaking, for the most part, we should be seeing a reduction in atmospheric concentrations, right? Well, you aren't wrong. And therein lies the hitch. Now, a paper published the 18th of May, 2018, titled An Expected and Persistent Increase in Global Emissions of Ozone-Depleting CFC-11 noted a slowed decline in atmospheric CFC-11 concentrations. As models were fiddled with in an attempt to understand this phenomenon, there were suggestions that maybe natural variability in weather patterns could explain it. But when the numbers were run, this could potentially explain slightly less than half of the rise. This immediately led the scientific community to a state of concern that someone was producing the banned substance illegally. Along then comes another paper published on the 22nd of May, 2019, titled Increase in CFC-11 Emissions from Eastern China Based on Atmospheric Observations. Using high-frequency atmospheric observations, the authors found an increase over eastern mainland China, primarily around the northeastern provinces of Shandong and Hebei. Aside from the fact that, if true, this was a major violation of an international treaty, even their findings failed to explain 100% of the change. Rather, they estimated the regional spike could explain between 40 to 60% of the increase. So maybe a combination of the two, you think? Well, potentially. Now, a third paper published the 10th of February, 2021, titled A Decline in Global CFC-11 Emissions During 2018-2019, to highlighted the fact that practically all emissions of CFC-11 from the aforementioned parts of China had ceased and global levels were once again on the decline. Now, if you think I'm about to caveat that, well, you'd be right. You see, even in this third paper, as they detail out in some of the more technical parts where they estimate what the levels should be versus what they are, the authors note slightly elevated levels. They explain this as potentially a difference in lifespan. But as with any good mystery, that explanation just doesn't feel like it covers everything. No, science isn't about feeling, rather it's about hard methods. However, it is feelings or questions that drive the desire for research and answers. So let's go find some more answers. You see, it seems like we forgot about something. A forcing that plays into the equation. And that's where we pick up the brilliant fourth and our main paper today, that will be published on March 23rd. How's that for cutting-edge scientific review, huh? In the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, or PNAS, titled On the Effects of the Ocean on Atmospheric CFC-11 Lifetimes and Emissions. So any of you that catch South of Two Degrees episodes immediately as they drop, know you'll likely see watered-down stories of this in the news in about a week. 
Now, if you didn't catch the forcing many previous studies missed in the title, I'll repeat it. The effects of the ocean. How we left out forcing from what covers more than 70% of our planet is an interesting point. But the authors of today's paper did a bang-on job of looking at it. So now let's look at their findings, hopefully reach a denouement, and maybe get a glimpse into the future. But before we hit the nitty-gritty, you should know a little tidbit that makes the fact that we missed the interplay of the ocean with respect to CFCs so shocking. Because it's not like we didn't know they were there. In fact, a paper published in 1988 titled Chlorofluorocarbons as Time-Dependent Tracers in the Ocean seems to kind of give up the ghost on that one. Now, how that came about is in part due to a unique occurrence in the late 1970s to early 1980s. You see, in the Labrador Sea, over that time period, was an uncommon lack of water convection and production there due to a complicated interplay of climate conditions. However, in the late 1980s to early 1990s, the climatic conditions in the Labrador Sea shifted and water production there exploded figuratively speaking, which then started spilling into the rest of the world's oceans. Because of this, the Labrador Sea acted as a holding pond, if you will, for CFCs that entered the ocean in the early 1980s and then as water spilled out in the early 90s, the dilution, distribution, and direction taken by the concentrated pool of CFCs allowed us to map many a current. Not as much fun as tracking currents from the lost container of rubber ducks, but if you don't know what that one is, well, That's a great sea story and a rare true one, I might add, for another day. The point being here is that despite all the papers published on atmospheric CFC concentrations, it seems no one took into account the interplay of the ocean. Or did they? Actually, there was a paper published back on the 20th of March, 1986, that did but ended up dismissing it as a significant sink because a paper published in 1979 came to the conclusion that the ocean was already supersaturated with CFC-11, so it would not serve as a sink. As a result, the 1986 paper dismissed it. So a simple question for you. When you have a high concentration of something in one area and low concentration in another with a passable barrier in between, what happens? Yep you get an exchange. One final note on that 1986 paper. It specifically states, quote, here we do not allow the tracer to escape from the sea to the atmosphere, thus calculating an upper limit for the partial sink, end quote. And with that ominous bit of foreshadowing, let's now look at the numbers from our main paper today. The authors set out to answer three specific questions as they look to explain the higher-than-expected concentrations in the atmosphere. The questions are, 1. How is the ocean affecting atmospheric CFC-11 inventory, the lifetime of CFC-11, in the atmosphere and its time dependence, and how does this in turn influence emission estimates based on observed concentrations? 2. When will the ocean become a source of CFC-11 to the atmosphere and how much will ocean outgassing affect the apparent emission and atmospheric mixing ratio in the future? 3. How will climate change affect ocean CFC-11 uptake in the future? 
Now, while this paper is a scant eight pages, it is so incredibly complex that I will freely admit we don't have time to break down every piece for you here on the show. However, if you would like to read the paper in its entirety, which I highly recommend, pop over to the southof2degrees.org website and you can find the link to the PNAS website and paper on our citations page. For the sake of this show, Let's focus on our little mystery and look at the answers to each of the three questions posed by the authors. Now, the authors found that by 1994, the ocean had stored 1% of all anthropogenic CFC-11, and by 2014, that had increased to upwards of 10% of the CFC-11 inventory. Further, the uptake of CFC-11 into the ocean via the air-sea flux is, quote, about 8.8% the destructive loss in the atmosphere in the 1950s, end quote. Now, the flux reached a maximum in the 1980s at 3.6 gigagrams per year, but had reduced to 1.2 gigagrams per year by 2010. So here we have the answer both to the first question posed by the authors, but also a plausible conclusion to our little mystery. You see, it's not so much that there's a spectral source beyond what was released in China a few years ago, but rather the calculations were off as the initial uptake by the ocean has slowed. According to the study, quote, the ocean's weakening sink leads to an increased accumulation of CFC-11 in the atmosphere, which biases estimates of new emissions if the ocean's effect is unaccounted for. End quote. What further throws off our initial calculations is the temporal aspect, namely the lifetime of CFC-11. You see, when only atmospheric loss is considered, it's a pleasant 55-year constant. However, when you add in oceanic forcing, to use a highly technical term, it gets a little wonky. With the ocean in the equation, the lifetime of CFC-11 in the 1950s was 50 years, yet it increased to 54 years by the year 2000 and is expected to climb to upwards of 60 years by the time year 2250 rolls around. So with our little mystery solved and the first question answered, let's go back to why I was excited about this paper in the first place. You remember the thought of looking far into the future to see if something we missed will impact our descendants. Well, guess what the bad news is? We did and we will. According to the authors, quote, a global net flux coming out of the ocean is projected to begin around 2075, and the release of CFC-11 from this bank implies an accumulating influence on atmospheric CFC-11 abundances that should become detectable in the global average after about 2145, end quote. Yep, you heard me right. Beginning in about 2075, the ocean will flip from a sink to a source of atmospheric CFC-11, and according to the paper, the ocean will continue releasing CFC-11 through the year 2300, which is where this study ended. If you think that's just tapering off by then, well, think again. The paper emphatically states, quote, the effect of the ocean source is counteracting the atmospheric loss by 14% in the 2290s, suggesting that CFC-11 lifetime should continue to increase far into the future. End quote. Finally, let's throw in climate change. I mean, sure, why not at this point, right? As I'm sure you've guessed, climate change makes the results worse. 
It seems that under RCP 8.5, the outgassing from the ocean begins a decade earlier in detectable atmospheric mixing five years earlier. And there you have it. My middle of the night questions of what my children's grandchildren's will face partially answered by the brilliant authors of this paper. While that may not be the happiest of notes, I believe it should be highlighted as a prime example of how even if you have swift action to address a daunting issue, the repercussions can last far into the future. But if we get ourselves together this year and boldly start tackling anthropogenic climate change, we can at least make things a little bit easier. For now though, I'm going to go cuddle with little Cecilia and start fresh tomorrow. For that wraps up another episode of South of Two Degrees. Hopefully you found today's show as incredibly fascinating as we did and enjoyed the little mystery spin. I look forward to having you back again with me next week. And in the meantime, aside from checking out all the latest information on our website, blog, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram, do this for me. Tell one other person about this show in the next week. Have at least one conversation about climate change with someone else. And above all, keep it south of two degrees.